On this week's episode of The Devil Made Me Do It, I want to look at, um, examine the case of the Brentwood Five Massacre that took place in Brentwood, Canada. Again, we'll examine the Brentwood Five Massacre, and we'll also talk about, I'll also talk about a little bit about mental health issue. And if once a person decides to kill, come off their meds and decide to kill, should they be allowed um, back in the general, you know, back in society without being unsupervised? So we'll look at, we're going to look at two things, the Brentwood Massacre, and we'll look at mental health. So on April 14, 2014, a group of friends threw a party to mark the end of classes at the University of Calgary at a small gray and blue split-level house on a quiet block of on a quiet block on Butler Crescent in the nearby neighborhood of Brentwood. There was a relatively small gathering with a, with many of those invited having gone to junior high or high school together. The rest knew each other from the university. It was an amazing group of young people that included Katie Perez, uh, you know me, I was missing up name, an accomplished dancer. We also have uh, Lawrence Hong, who was an aspiring urban planner. We have Josh Hunter and Zachariah Rothwell, were two talented musicians. We have Jordan Sequira, I believe, that's how you pronounce his name, was a young man well on his way to becoming a humanitarian. And last, we have, um, uh, I think, yes, Jordan Sequira was a young man who was becoming a humanitarian. The mood was laid back and relaxed, nothing crazy or out of hand yet. A few people hang around the fire pit in the backyard, others inside the house. One guy stood out, and his name is Matthew. He was invited by Brandon, one of the roommates at the Brentwood house. They were childhood friends. So uh, Matthew and Brandon were childhood friends, and Brandon invited Matthew. He arrived at the party late, but his conversations seemed ominous. He went on and on about conspiracy theory. Most of the party goers didn't think much of it. But his behavior got more and more strange. And at one point, he put on a blue surgical gloves and even kept them on when he washed his hands. So this is Matthew, who was invited by Brandon to the party. Um, now, mind you, Matthew is an uh, introvert. And I guess Brandon wanted to invite him out because he's always home. But he's also a college student and and, and excel academically. So, you know, he though he wasn't part of the clique here, he but he was a college student as well. And mind you, excelled academically. So, you know, this was uh, Matthew. But aside from him putting on the gloves to wash his hand, he also carried garlic in his pocket. He started ta- talking about the blood moon and ap- apocalypse and vampires. And at this point, I'm saying to myself, this he's a loony. But you know young people today, they talk about all sorts of crazy stuff and nobody really take it serious. But at around 1 a.m. on April 15th, a group of friends went to a nearby McDonald's to pick up some food. So some of the friends decide, you know, they'll go get some McDonald's. The party was still going on. It wasn't a large group. The people in the neighborhood said they've always had party and they've never heard a sound or a peep come out of them. So they weren't rowdy kids. You know, school was ending and they want to do, you know, uh, their last get together before they go off on, on their break. Lawrence, one of the five, 
was asleep on a love seat in the living room. Josh, Katie, and Jordan were all sitting together on a couch across from the room. Zach was in the kitchen. What happened next happened quickly and unexpectedly. Matthew suddenly took a large chef knife from a block in the kitchen. Mind you, Zach was in the kitchen with him. He stabbed Zach seven times, then made his way to the living room. There was no warning, no fight, no altercation. Joshua stabbed six times. Matthew stabbed Jordan once. Katie tried to escape and run out the living room, but he quickly caught up to her in the dining room and stabbed her four times. Lawrence was still asleep when he was stabbed four times. Despite suffering life-threatening injuries, Josh got up and ran out the front door of the house. Matthew followed him. The group who had, got, the group who had gone to pick up fast food returned, heard Katie's screams from inside the house, and witnessed Matthew chasing Josh down the street with the knife in his hand. Brandon, the roommate who invited Matthew, ran after him. Josh was still in the fight. Josh was still in fight for his life and ran back towards the house where he collapsed on the front lawn. Brandon caught up with Matthew down the street. Matthew handed over the blood-soaked knife to Brandon, and I guess he said it was the night of the long knives. Jokingly, this is what Matthew, the kid that did the stabbing, said to Brandon, his friend, and then took off. Brandon chased after him, chased after him again. Once he caught up to him, Matthew wiped his blood hands on Brandon's hands and told him they were blood brothers. He wanted his friend not to get in his way or he would be next. So basically, Matthew told Brandon that you better let me go or I'm going to, you know, do butcher you like what I did to the other five um, people. Brandon let Matthew go. Meanwhile, back at the house, one of the other roommates. So there was another roommate that didn't come down to the party. She kind of kept to herself. Oh, thank God. Stayed upstairs. When she heard all the commotion going on there, she locked the door and called the police. Meanwhile, back at the house, one of the other roommates called 911. Police arrived on the scene within five minutes. Zach, Jordan, and Lawrence were already dead. Josh and Katie were rushed to the hospital but later died from their injuries. Almost immediately after the 911 calls were made, Matthew was spotted by police running frantically away from the crime scene. Officers deployed the the canine unit and said he appeared to have no fear of the police service dog. He showed no signs of pain and, and continued to fight back as they put him under arrest. Inside his pocket, they found a latex glove and he had a clove of garlic in his socks. He told police he was to keep the vampires away and said he wanted to speak to a lawyer. So at this point, I guess uh, he knew what he did. And to, uh, to, to just to state uh, what happened earlier, um, when he was invited to the party, uh, he, he lives with experience again. He's a, a, a student that was excelling academically. So it wasn't like the mental issues that he had affect him academically. But when his dad asked him where he was going, he said he was going to hang out with, with Brandon. And of course, the father knows Brandon. But then the, the, the father, sometimes apparent intuition, his intuition kind of kicked in and he was texting him back and forth. And then the text messages that he was sending was, was sounding weird. So he wanted to get, his father's a police. He wanted to get um, the location of where Matthew was exactly. Matthew wouldn't tell him because I guess knowing his son, and we all know her kids, he knew, he knew something was, was, was off with him. 
Uh, Matthew was put in an ambulance and told paramedics I was just trying to kill them before they killed me. To add to the complexity of this case, investigators quickly learned the suspect was the son of one of their own. Matthew was a 22-year-old son of a veteran high-ranking officer with the Calgary Police Service and would soon be charged with five counts of first-degree murder. But what led to such a horrific violent attack? <sighs> Matthew's state of mind at the time of the stabbing would become the focal point of the case. Doctors who, ex- who assessed him said he was clearly experiencing a psychotic episode at the time. Evidence showed he believed he was the son of God and Hitler reincarnated and that the victims were Illuminati, werewolves, and Medusas. He eventually di- he was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. schizophrenia. During the trial, it was revealed that Matthew heard a male voice who he thought was Satan telling him to kill the five young people before they killed him. But during what was real or what could have been fake also became a major part of the police investigation in this case. After hours of interviews and psychological testing, experts experts supported a finding of not criminality not criminal responsible. On May 25, 2016, the justice presiding over the case agreed with those experts and found him not criminally um, responsible. Uh, the Queen's Bench Justice emphasized the law around the NCR ruling, which ensures people who have mental disorders are treated, not punished. The, that court ruling officially ended the uh, Matthews dealing with the Canadian criminal justice system, system, and his case was moved into a healthcare facility. He was sent to a secure psychiatric facility, but for how long? Would there come a day when he would once again be free? That's the question to which the families of the five victims wanted to answer. So let's get into the mental part of it here. Um, The Alberta Review Board, ARB, looks at the Matthews case annually and decides if there is still a significant threat to public safety. My question also, is is there a threat to safety? If you've killed someone, if you're mentally ill and you stop taking your medication and you kill someone, should you be um, under, locked up under, with supervision, or can you be trusted to be released again out in um, society? It's not up to uh, Matthew to prove he isn't a risk. It's up to the board to find evidence that he is. Now, how do you find evidence that he is? Each year, the board has three options. Continuous treatment in a secure facility, grant him a conditional discharge, or grant him absolute discharge. So these are the three options that the board reviews every year. Continuous treatment in a secure facility, grant him a conditional discharge, or grant him an absolute discharge. The law states that the board has to impose the least omnia, uh, the least restriction while protecting the public. So the least uh, restriction I think here would be um, conditional discharge or gra- conditional discharge, meaning they would if he once he's out he should be supervised, but. Can they? That means he would have to be supervised round the clock, twenty-four-seven. <laughs> anyway, um, according to the nineteen to a nineteen nine nineteen ninety-nine ruling by the Supreme Court of Canada, um, a review board must order absolute discharge if a person doesn't pose as a significant threat. Just ten months after he was declared NCR, uh, I guess not criminally uh, liable. 
uh, Matthew asked for increased freedom because right now they were he was being supervised when he was discharged. So now he's asking for complete freedom. Again, should he get complete freedom or should he stay? Should they put him in the option where he could be released back to society, but he has to be supervised? He's saying that uh, uh, his doctor described Matthew as a model patient and he was granted unsupervised ground privilege. That's on the grounds of the facility as well as passes into the city as long as he was supervised by a responsible adult. Both his parents have that status. Okay, so his parents are the one that will be responsible for him if they decide to release him back in society and give him freedom. His parents would be the one that would supervise him all the time. But is that something they could do? Is that something that they should do? I I mean, like I said, his dad knew what was going on with him. And uh, being that he, had, he hadn't done anything so wicked, uh, his father was still concerned about him and wanted his whereabouts as where he was because he was going to go there and pick him up. He wouldn't give his father that information. So he, he, he was planning on killing somebody. He, I, I guess he had stopped taking his meds. His parents didn't know, but from the text between his dad and himself, his dad kind of caught on that something was wrong with him and he wanted to go get him, but he did not want to let his father know where he was. So can his father, his parents be trusted his father's a police. Can they be trusted to supervise him now? He's a grown man, right? Ah, okay. By 2019, the freedom was again increased. So they're increasing his freedom little by little, but they still haven't um, discharged him fully, give him fully, fully discharged where he could be fully free. That same year, the ARB noted that um, Matthew was experiencing insomnia and increased activity which they said showed evidence of mental deterioration when a change was made to um, Matthew's medication. So there's something, they changed his medication and he was in prison in some Doctor said there was, there was under recognition and under reporting by, the, by Matthew um, of his developing symptoms. When his medication is working, he has a good understanding of his mental health. I need for I need for treatment, but when his medication is not working, his prescription deteriorates along with the condition. They said the doctors note that while schizophrenia can not be cured, it can be managed. Okay, I understand that, but my question again is: Should he be let out in society without supervision? And does can his parents supervise him twenty four seven around the clock? What happens when are they going to go sleep? When they go to sleep, what if he goes out? And I mean. Mind you, I personally believe that he should be supervised by a professional that's uh, a part of the psychiatric plan that they've enacted for him, that he's under. It shouldn't be up to his parents. But then again, who, who wants that? I mean, it takes a lot of money. So I guess, you know, his parents opted to supervise him, but I, I don't know. They couldn't, they didn't, couldn't supervise him before he committed this crime. So... I don't know how much they'll be able to handle him. Um, according to the ARB written disposition, if uh, Matthew stops taking his medication, he's likely to relapse within weeks and months, and the relapse is likely to become full-blown. The violence could once again be catastrophic if he does re-enter a, a psychotic state, according to documents. So if he gets, by, again, this is what I was, I'm saying, he's a grown man, unless his parents are going to be, um, administering his medication and making sure 
he takes his medication. And again, uh, it, they have to stay on top of it. But not even that, when he goes out, they have to go with him. He's a grown man. And again, I'm telling you, he was, uh, he was uh, performing academically. They, it, uh, I guess when he's on his meds, he, could perf- he was performing academically at the university. There was no issue with him doing his schoolwork. But um, there's always an issue with them not taking their meds. But again, if he, they're, they're, they're saying that if he doesn't take a meds, he could relapse. Now, do we want to chance that and let somebody out in society that we know that, that have such a disease and if by any chance has a relapse could cause the death of other people? This is my question. Um, we know mental illness, some mental illness cannot be cured, but some of them are so severe and so serious that I think that he should be kept in the, in the psychi- psychiatric facility and he should be monitored um, when he goes out, period. That's it.